Hebrews 11 and verse 22. 11, 22. By faith, Joseph mentioned the Exodus. 11, 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you that when we approach this word, it is your word. It is true. It's, it's reliable. It's trustworthy. And we should put our confidence in it. As Joseph did of old, we pray that we will do as well. That we will put our hope in the future, put our hope in unseen things, put our hope in Christ, put our hope in the world to come, in heaven, not on earth. Teach us, Lord, from this example to be the same. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when we come to Joseph, there is also one brief verse mentioned of Joseph. And we have seen from last time there was Jacob, and then we will see a few verses on Moses in the next study of this chapter. When we come to these individuals, let me remind us our, ourselves one more time, which I have mentioned several times in the past, but not recently. And that is, when we study the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the Bible, we're not studying them as though they figured out religion in some unusual way, in some mysterious way, or that they figured out how to make things work in life in some way, or that they had faith that uh, faith in faith or faith in themselves or something of that nature. That's not why we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Moses and so forth. That's not why we talk about them. We talk about them because the scriptures say that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Our hope is in God, and whatever was written in earlier times was written to instruct us, to teach us to have perseverance and to have hope and to persevere until the end, to persevere. Well, now these things happened as examples for us and, and upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They happen as examples for us because we live in this period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Therefore, they are meant to instruct us and to encourage us to be just like them who put their hope in Christ. To be just like them to put their hope that they put their hope in Christ, so we should put our hope in Christ. This is why the examples are here. They, are, they were humans, just like we are humans. They had a human nature, a sinful human nature, just like we have a sinful human nature. They had problems related to hell. They had problems related to death. They had problems related to um, income and supplies and whether God would provide for their daily needs or not. They had people who didn't like them. They had people who caused conflicts against them. They had all of these kinds of problems. They even explained the gospel to people and the persecutors didn't like it and wanted to kill them. These kinds of things happened. They would not tolerate sin. They lived righteously. They lived a holy life. And yet their persecutors didn't like it because then the persecutors wouldn't get their way. And so they attack the people of God. This is the way of life in past generations, in our generation, and in future generations. This is the way it is. That's why these examples are here, to encourage us to persevere until the end. And who else persevered? It was Joseph. It says he had faith. 
He had faith, and notice, his faith manifested itself in the way he spoke, in, the, in what his hope was. He put his faith in the hope of things yet future. This is what faith does. Faith puts hope in the things that are yet future, things that are unseen, things that have not happened yet. That's what Joseph did. By faith, he looked to the future, and he actually said words of hope in the future. He made mention of the Exodus and gave orders concerning his bones. Let's understand this connection. Faith will manifest itself, true faith will manifest itself in fruit, in good fruit, in fruit that is defined as the Bible defines good fruit. That's the way true faith shows itself, demonstrates itself. In Joseph's case, he mentions only this, that he made mention of the Exodus and gave orders concerning his bones. This was not the only thing Joseph did. He did many more other things that manifested true faith. Yet the connection has to be understood. If there is true faith, then there must be faithfulness or obedience demonstrating that true faith. This is why Joseph is here. He gives us another example of a man of God who had faith. Now, who was this Joseph that he mentions here? This Joseph is not Joseph, the, uh, the husband of Mary, of Joseph and Mary and Jesus. This is not that Joseph. This Joseph is the Joseph in the book of Genesis, Joseph who was one of the sons of Jacob, also called Israel. Jacob or Israel had 12 sons and daughters. The number of daughters isn't mentioned, but it does say daughters in the plural. He had 12 sons who became 12 tribes. And one of the sons disobeyed or sinned against his own father and he stripped him away, that was Reuben, stripped him away of his double portion. And instead he gave Joseph a double portion by adopting Ephraim and Manasseh. We saw this last time. Jacob or Israel adopted Ephraim and Manasseh and when they inherited the land of Canaan, Joseph's two sons each got an inheritance. So Joseph in a way got two portions in the land of Canaan. This is the Joseph we meet. Now, if we read the book of Genesis from chapters 37 to 50, the last major section of the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's life is explained to us. It's primarily and mostly explaining incidents in his life. Now, in this case, he mentions when he was dying, which is in chapter 50, when he was dying. And why is it that he's mentioning the death of Joseph? Just like he did with Jacob as he was dying. And as well with Abraham, the last major temptation that Abraham had was later in life, not early in his life, was, was in chapter 11, 17 to 19, when he put Isaac on the altar. And it seems that the apostle is trying to teach us from this that we need to persevere until our last breath. It's not enough to have temporary faith. It's not enough to say, well, I converted at age 20, and I was faithful for a year, but then it doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't care about it. You, you can't do that. And it doesn't matter what age. It cannot be a temporary faith, whether it's a year or five years or 10 years, or someone who says he converted at age 20, and then at age 50, he just says, no, I don't want this anymore, and he walks away. 
And this has happened. I have actually experienced and heard of men who have done that. And whenever something happens, they say they've been believers all their life. And then at age 50, they say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. They divorce their wives, create a big stink in the household. And then they go off with somebody else, do something else in life, and become a, uh, a blatantly wicked man. This has happened. But he's teaching us here, it should not happen to us. It should not happen to us if we have true faith. True faith perseveres until the last breath. No denial of Christ, no walking away from the faith, no having an evil, unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, 12. 12 to 14, he told us earlier. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's addressing the people of the church. So the people who are gathered to worship, he's addressing them and he calls them brethren, brothers, he calls them. But he warns them, he says, take care, watch out, be careful, lest or else there might be among you someone with an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Don't let that happen. And the way to prevent that to happen, the physical or the practical means that the Bible has given us to prevent that from happening is to encourage one another day after day. Not occasionally, not once a year or twice a year, but day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are not a true partaker of Christ. In other words, verse 14, we're not a true partaker of Christ if we do not hold fast from beginning to end. If we don't hold fast until the end, we give it up a year down the road, five, ten years down the road, whatever number of years down the road, we give it up, we fall away, we walk away, we indulge ourselves, then we don't belong to him. We have not endured until the end. So as Joseph endured, as Joseph endured, we must endure until the end. And what will we say? When, what will we say as Jacob and Joseph and others when they were on their deathbed? Isaac, what will we say to those who are standing around our deathbed? Are we going to maintain the faith and encourage them in the faith to press on, to move on, to endure whatever life brings them and believe in the gospel of Christ? Are we going to do that? That's why this example is here, so that we might do the same. No matter what our circumstances, we should do the same. Then, let's see here, he says that he made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, made mention of the exodus and gave orders concerning his bones. These two events, they go together, the exodus and giving the orders concerning his bones and the fulfillment of this command to take up his bones. Now what happened in the life of Joseph that he's mentioning this kind of thing about Canaan and let's understand the relationship of the land of Canaan to Egypt and then going back to Canaan. Let's understand this sequence of events. 
Let's back up a little bit. First, God called Abraham out of a foreign land in the land of Babylon. He called him out of his wickedness, his idolatry, and converted him. God converted Abraham by the Spirit of Christ. He converted Abraham, and Christ appeared to Abraham, and Abraham was saved. God told Abraham to leave that, that nation, the Babylonian nation, that area, in order to go to a land that God would eventually tell him what, which land specifically. Temporarily, he lived in a, another land north of the land of Canaan, and then eventually God told him to move to the land of Canaan. Then he moved to the land of Canaan according to the will of God, according to the chronology of God, the timing of God, he moved to Canaan. And why was it that God told Abraham to move to Canaan and to live in Canaan? Why Canaan? Why that land? Because Canaan in the Bible is an example and becomes an illustration. It becomes a type. It becomes a way of God explaining that if you obey me about things you don't know, things you have not seen, ultimately this land of Canaan is a picture it's an example of living in heaven. Living in heaven. The land of Canaan, living in the land of Canaan is a picture and is an example of living in heaven. That's why he says Canaan. God chose to use that land as a picture, a type of Canaan. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Look, for example, at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 and verse verses 13 to 16. It says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, notice the distance, from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, now he just mentioned men like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. He's mentioned them and he says, that those who say such things, that they are strangers and exiles on the earth, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. What's the country of their own? Not the land of Canaan. That's not what he means. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. That is, when problems happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, they could have easily returned back to their native land. I'm going to go back to where it's familiar to me. But that's not what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph did. They didn't do that. They could have easily done that, but they didn't do that. So when they are talking about being strangers and exiles, they're not saying, well, I'm a foreigner from Babylon to Canaan. No, that's not the way they mean it. What they're saying is, I'm a stranger on the whole earth because the whole earth is my temporary abode. My, the whole earth, the, 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 uh, the, the planet in here is where I'm supposed to be just for a short number of years because God does not intend for us to put our hope in this world, but to put our hope in the world to come, in the life to come. And notice, 16, but as it is, Hebrews eleven sixteen. but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. There he makes it clear. We're talking about heaven, a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a heavenly city for them. This is why God's not ashamed to be called their God, because 
He knows that they are working towards the right ends. They have the right mindset, the right purpose in their life, the heavenly city. And it's not only them. It's not only them. It's also us. Look at chapter 12. Hebrews 12. It's not only the patriarchs who are looking like this, looking forward to heaven and the heavenly city, but we're also supposed to do so. Hebrews 12 and verse 22. 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Who's the you? The church. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, also called Mount Zion. Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. God doesn't dwell on the earth. No, the earth is his footstool. Heaven is his throne, it says in Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. No, and then here he says, we are also enrolled in heaven, verse 23. We have come to the right uh, the, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That is, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. These people in the past who have died, their spirits have been made perfect because they're in the presence of God where there is no sin. So now they are perfect. And this is what our hope and future is too, to be made perfect like they are made perfect. And also chapter 13, Hebrews 13. 13, 13 also teaches us our relationship to heaven. 13, 13, hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We have to go to Christ outside the camp, bearing his reproach. His reproach or his yeah, his uh, dishonor, Christ's dishonor was that he was humiliated on the cross in the eyes of the world, right? And the world would look at that and mock that. And that's the way we need to live, just like Jesus lived. Why? For here in this world, we do not have a lasting city. We don't have anything lasting here, but we are seeking the city which is to come, the heavenly city. This is us. We need to be just like they were. Then another aspect of what Joseph says, he makes, makes mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. We're talking about this relationship between Babylon, Canaan, and Egypt. And Canaan is an example of heaven. God used it as a token and as an illustration of the way that they should look toward heaven, look to heaven and heavenly things. But then what about Egypt? What happened there? You remember, in the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 37, Joseph, he was 17 years old, 17 years old, and God revealed dreams to him, describing what would happen in the future to him and his family. God gave him dreams, and then he announced those dreams. His brothers hated him for those dreams, and so they plotted to get rid of him. But one of the brothers said, no, let's not get rid of him. Let's not put him to death. Let's sell him as a slave. Let's sell him as a slave. So 
That's what they did. They sold him as a slave. He was only 17 years old and he was gone. The brothers returned to their father and made the father think that a wild animal seized him and killed him. And that's what the father thought for many years. He thought, my son Joseph has been slain or killed or attacked by a wild animal. And that's the way the brothers treated their father, treated their own brother. And then he went on to Egypt. The, the traders who were trading in slaves, they went to Egypt, they sold him in Egypt, and then he became a slave in the house of the uh, captain of the bodyguard or the king of Egypt. The captain of the bodyguard of the king of Egypt, Joseph became his slave. He worked in his house and he did all kinds of things in his house. He was very faithful. Now, Joseph, I believe, based on the way the Bible describes him, I believe he was a saved, converted man at least by the age of 17. Because shortly after he's being faithful there in that household of the master, there, the master's wife, Potiphar's wife, looks at him and has a desire for him because he was a handsome young man. And she wanted him, she wanted to be with him, to lie with him and to commit adultery. Even though she was married to Potiphar, she wanted to commit adultery with him. But Joseph resisted and he resisted and he resisted. But one day he was alone in the house. Usually others are around, but one day he was alone in the house and she saw him alone in the house and she goes to him, seizes him, so she says, lie with me. And he says, no, how could I do this? Your master has put everything under my charge. He has not withheld anything from me because he trusts him. He has not uh, doubted me at all on anything. And the only thing he has withheld from me is you because you're his wife. And this kind of thing is not supposed to happen. How could I do this uh, evil and sin against God, this great evil and sin against God? How could I do that? Joseph, Joseph said that. Well, he was mistreated. The wife, the wife slandered him and the wife said that he was trying to pursue her when she, actually she was trying to pursue him. And she reversed it and then he got thrown in jail. He got thrown in jail. Well, there he stays in jail a couple of years, in jail. What happened after that? After he's in jail, there is conflict between two of Pharaoh's officials and the, the officials of Pharaoh had their own dreams. And Joseph, being a prophet of God, he interpreted those dreams because they were divinely given to those two men. And Joseph, as a prophet, he explained the dreams. And then they were released from prison. The one man, the one official was restored to his office and nothing more happened. The other one was restored to his office uh, quickly and then he was executed. He was, I mean, he was released from prison and then he was executed. That's what happened to the other one. It happened just like that. Then Pharaoh has dreams. Pharaoh has dreams. And what happens when Pharaoh has dreams? He is terrified and he's uncertain as to what the meaning of these dreams are. These dreams were divinely given for the purpose of Pharaoh being so bewildered and confused. What do these dreams mean? That he consulted his officials and his officials said, oh, there's this one slave, this Hebrew slave in the prison he can interpret your dreams. So Joseph is brought out, he interprets, and guess what? Pharaoh says, okay, you, you've said that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Then you are so wise, I will put you in charge of this whole project. 
to protect us, to protect our people, to protect our land. So Joseph becomes the second ruler in the whole country. He was a nobody in a foreign land, and then he became second ruler in a foreign country because of those circumstances. By the age of 30, he became the second ruler. That means for 13 years, he suffered and suffered and suffered. 13 years, no opening, no open door. But at age 30, he becomes the second ruler. Well, then time passes. The, the years of blessing come and Joseph prepares the land. He stores a lot of food for the people. And then the years of famine come. When the years of famine come, Jacob, Jacob in Canaan and the surrounding lands, that's the, the surrounding lands of Egypt. And in Egypt, there was famine. And that one of the surrounding lands was the land of Canaan. In that land, there was a famine. So Jacob says, listen, we've heard that there's food in Egypt. So he sends his sons to Egypt to get some food and bring them back. When he goes there, Joseph does not, Joseph does not um, uh, reveal himself to his brothers. He recognizes his brothers, but his brothers do not recognize him because some time has passed. And who would have thought that since they sold him as a slave, that he would be the second ruler and that when they come, they have to approach him. And I'm sure he looked different. I'm sure he looked more mature, and I'm sure his, but by his clothing and whatever else, he looked different, so they didn't recognize him. 13 years later, or 15 years later, they didn't rec or recognize him. So because of this, Joseph, he gives them whatever they want, but he makes it so that they are in turmoil and they have to come back. And they do come back. They come back, and when they come back the second time, at that time, shortly after that, he sends them off, but then calls them back again. Quickly, he reveals himself to them as to who he is. And when he does reveal himself as to who he is, he says this. He says this in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Remember, he reveals who he is, excuse me, first Genesis chapter 45. He reveals who he is to them, and they are perplexed. They are anxious. They're, they're wondering what's going on here. And notice, notice it says in chapter 45, chapter 45, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. 
Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for, for there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And then they do so. Jacob comes, Jacob comes, he sees Joseph, and they have a reunion. And then the family of Joseph, or the clan of, uh, excuse me, the family of Jacob, the clan of Jacob, comes, all, all of them come from Canaan to Egypt. Why? Because it tells us in another place in the book of Genesis, Genesis 15, it tells us why it has to be. And the reason is, for some years, the family of Jacob, the whole clan, has to come to Egypt because God will eventually, after they live in a foreign land for a while, after they suffer affliction for a while, and they as a nation become slaves in Egypt, God will deliver them from there and send them back to the land of Canaan until it's time to punish the Canaanites and to give the people of Israel, who will become numerous at the time, that whole territory, the land of Canaan. Why did he do this? He did it because he was teaching them to have patience, teaching them to persevere, teaching them to trust God, teaching them not to put their hope in any one place or thing or any one person, but to put their hope in him. Well, then, when they are supposed to leave, as promised, what are they supposed to do? Joseph, he knew of the earlier promises of God that your descendants, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would be slaves in a land not theirs, and then 400 years later, they will be released from that slavery, they will come into the land of Canaan and own the land of Canaan themselves. This is what he promised. Joseph knew of this promise. That's why now in chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, he says the following. Remember now, in Genesis 50, Jacob, the father of Joseph, died, and he was buried in Canaan. Now Joseph is about to die, and his brothers are worried about what's going to happen, and Joseph commands them what they're supposed to do before he dies. Firstly, they're, what they're worried about. What they're worried about, Genesis chapter 50 and verse, verse 17, or no, verse 16 says, and they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Notice here, they want forgiveness, then they don't want him to execute revenge on them. And they also call themselves servants of the God of your father. They are identifying themselves as believers by this point, at least. That they are believers, they believe in the God of Jacob, and they also believe in the God of Joseph. They are all believers now. They have repented of their sins, and they just are concerned about retaliation. And then Joseph answers, verse 18, Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph, also being a man of God, he experienced the forgiveness of God, so he forgave his brothers. No problem. And he says, I'm not in God's place. Now, all of these events, all of these evil things that have happened, happened because you, when you were disobeying God, you meant it for evil. But what did God do? God used evil and brought good out of it. And part of the good is to preserve many people alive. Because they are preserved alive, therefore there can be many descendants. And if there are many descendants, one of those descendants will eventually come into the world, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead for our justification. He will come into the world. And if Christ comes into the world, then the many nations of the earth can be blessed. Because God said to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The promises of God could only be fulfilled if these circumstances happen. That's what he's saying. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve many people alive. Okay, so Joseph is reconciled completely with his brothers, and he comforts them. No problems. Then what does Joseph do before he breathes his last breath? It says in 22, Genesis 50, 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Firstly, notice, he lived to be 110 years, but only 17 of those years were in the land of Canaan. All the rest of those years he lived in Egypt even though God promised the land of Canaan to all the people. He only lived there 17 years. So why? Why is this here? Why is this dilemma here? Because Canaan is a symbol of heaven. To the extent that one believes that Canaan is a symbol of heaven, one benefits. Canaan is a symbol of heaven. Then 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, which we can read about in the earlier chapters of Genesis. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob again and again that they would possess the land of Canaan as a symbol of heaven, as a symbol of heaven. 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely, surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, what's the point of Joseph making his own relatives swear this oath? God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Does it matter where we are buried? Does it really matter where we are buried? No. So then why did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, and why did Joseph here have a concern about where he would be buried? He had a concern about where he would be buried because he understood the symbolism and he wanted the people and he wanted us to understand the symbolism so that we could make the connection between the symbolism and the reality, the symbolism and the substance. That is the example here of what it is to be. The example is to be an example of heaven, to put our hope in heaven as the land of Canaan represented. And we do know, reading from Exodus 
chapter 13, that Moses believed in this too. Look at 13.19. 13.19, where Joseph's charge, where Joseph's charge or orders were carried out. Exodus 13.19 says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Look there. After they became numerous in Egypt, hundreds of years later in the time of Moses, Moses fulfills this order by taking up the bones of Joseph. Not because it's important to be buried in a certain place, but because the burial and the bones in the land of Canaan are all representative of eternal life. Eternal life. The eternal life found in Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, why bones? Why bones? Bones because of resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. You see, in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, the Bible teaches, deep in the Old Testament, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Resurrection means that though our bodies die and temporarily our inner man is separated from our outer man, our body, though there is that separation temporarily, our bodies, though buried or even thrown into the sea or even burned by fire, our bodies, however they are disintegrated, will one day be raised from the dead physically, miraculously, immortally, eternally. That's the way it will be. No more as the objects of pain, no more as the objects of, of sickness, no more as the objects of evil and death. No more. Immortality. This is what Joseph is doing. He's teaching them and reminding them that this is our hope, the resurrection of the dead. Turn in your Bibles to one place in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel clearly teaches resurrection of the dead. And this is important for us to understand because some people think that no one believed in resurrection, eternal resurrection, immortal resurrection. Nobody believed in it until Jesus rose from the dead and then it began to be a belief among the people. No, 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 no. That's not the case. Jesus' resurrection is the first one that was immortal and it is an example for us that we will be just like him. He said in John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also, he said. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, he said in John eleven twenty five. But here, deep in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, we have resurrection taught. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here there's two groups of people. The one group is explained more than the other. Notice the two groups are in verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. He's using a figure of speech to talk about death, physical death. Many of those who sleep to sleep and he uses the imagery or the metaphor of sleep because our physical death is temporary, just like sleep is temporary. Our physical death 
is temporary, just as sleep is temporary, and many of those who sleep will awake to everlasting life, he says. Everlasting life. So the dust of our bodies, they will rise from the dead to everlasting life. But there's another group, verse 2, but the others, and by this he means all the others, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. This also is teaching, therefore, that wicked people, all unbelievers, all wicked people, they will rise also from the dead, and though they have a physical body, it will be tormented and disgraced forever and ever. It says, disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there are two resurrections. That is, one group of people, we who know Christ, we who are his sheep, we will be raised from the dead to everlasting life, no more to experience pain and death. But the other group of unbelievers, the goats, they will also rise from the dead. These are the ones who are still in their sin. These who rise from the dead, they will be thrown into hell and be tormented forever and ever. They will experience pain and death forever and ever. Two groups. This is taught in the Old Testament. This is what Joseph believed. And this is what he was teaching his own descendants to believe these same things and reminded of these truths by taking his bones from Egypt and, and, and uh, delivering them to the land of Canaan and burying them there. This is who we are. This is who we must be. We must be a part of the resurrection to life, not the resurrection to death, just like Joseph. Joseph he believed all of these truths. Though it does not say it in Hebrews 11.22, if we consider carefully all of the words of Hebrews 11.22 about the faith of Joseph and all of the background related to it, we understand that his hope was in heaven. His hope was Christ. He did not trust in himself. He trusted in Christ. Let's do that ourselves. And let's encourage other people to do the same. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.